0: The blood and the flesh on his back is starting to dry out and stick to the wood of the cross behind him. But the agony of the torn flesh from the flogging has been replaced by a new pain. Nails have been driven through his hands and feet. Every single movement in his body sends a searing pain through his arms and legs. Jesus is exhausted from hours and hours of torture The thorns in his forehead are mixing blood with the sweat that keeps settling in his eyes. If only he had a hand free, he could wipe some of it away, not that there's anything pleasant for him to see. So Jesus lets his eyes close for a moment. His hands, feet, back, and head are all in extreme pain, but that doesn't even address the psychological pain that he feels knowing that he doesn't deserve any of this. Jesus had just witnessed one of his own closest friends betray him to the Jews and to the Romans with a kiss. He had been beaten and spat upon by the spiritual leaders of the Jews. The rest rest of his friends had fled and he had heard the cries for his killing from the people who the week prior had welcomed him as a king. Jesus also knew that his father was forsaking him by putting all the guilt for sin on him and judging him in it. The separation from the Father, with whom he had been one for eternity, might have been the deepest pain that Jesus felt. Jesus opens his eyes, realizing that he's been slouching because of the pain in his feet. Pulling himself up with his hands causes a shocking amount of agony as the ligaments and the bones twist and contort around the spikes that are through the middle of his hands. Pushing himself up with his feet does the same thing. Metal spikes through the tendons and nerves between the bones in his feet cause shooting pain up his legs as he lifts himself. But pulling in with his hands and pushing up with his feet momentarily relieve another kind of torture that he's beginning to feel. Every time he relaxes his hands and feet because they hurt too much, he realizes that he can't really breathe. So moment by moment, Jesus has to decide whether to embrace the shocking pain of pulling on the nails in his hands and pushing on the nails in his feet or to embrace the torture of slow suffocation. After hours of this back and forth, the human body eventually fatigues to the point where it cannot relieve the strain Exhaustion sets in, the victim's body relaxes, and they suffocate. If crucifixion was such a brutally efficient way to kill someone, isn't it fascinating that it would be the way that Jesus, our Messiah, would be killed? As we continue in our series on John called Believe, we're gonna look at what happens as Jesus dies and after. In John 19:30 30 through 37, we read this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. So, last week, Brian led us into the story of the crucifixion, and it is one of the easier stories for us to trivialize because we are so familiar with it. Very few have not heard that Jesus came and died on a cross for our sins. So, today, we're taking a serious and a sober look at the crucifixion and the burial of the Lord of hosts and some of what that means for us. So let's have a fresh perspective of an old truth. And the way that I want to do that is by answering some of the basics, some of the who, what, where, when, how questions. Who? Well, obviously the who is Jesus, but who is Jesus? Let's look at a few verses that talk about who Jesus is. In our book, John, John 8, 58 says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In this verse, Jesus was having a heated debate with the religious elite of his day, arguing about who he was. And when I say a heated debate, I mean that after he said this, they picked up stones to kill him. I've been in... Conversations with people, and I've made some people very angry, but I've never had someone pick up a stone to try to kill me. This was a tense moment because Jesus outrightly claimed, I am. I am was the name that God gave Himself when He was talking to Moses, when He revealed Himself to Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and Moses has given us basically the foundational understanding of what we have as humanity of who God actually is. I am is the first name that we have for God. In Isaiah 9, there's a prophecy talking about Jesus and describing him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. In 1 Timothy 2, we see that Jesus is a mediator between God and humanity. In John 1.3, it says this about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Clearly stated, Jesus is the maker of all things. And just to be specific, all things that have been made means anything that is not God. That includes all of the earth, the heavens, and everything that is within them but it also includes things like time and space, angels, demons, the throne room of heaven, hell, intellect, emotions. Hebrews 1 verses 2 and 3 expound on this, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's so many ways that we could describe who Jesus is, but this is what I want to focus on. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things that exist All of time, all of matter, all spirit, everything is held together and sustained by the word of Jesus' power. So the who is Jesus, great I am, God, creator, sustainer of all things. What? To answer the what, we can simply say that Jesus died. But when you think about who he is, the fact that he died is a big deal. Where? Where? Jesus died on a rock just outside the city limits of Jerusalem. So an omnipresent or an everywhere present God died in a specific place outside of a specific town. When? Jesus died somewhere between 30 and 36 AD. So an eternal God who had no beginning, who will have no end, who transcends all of time, died on a specific Friday... Before a specific Passover of a specific year in time. And then lastly, how did Jesus die? Given everything that we just thought about concerning who he was, let's think about whether it's even remotely possible that crucifixion could kill Jesus. In fact, not one of the Gospels, not one of the biographical narratives of Jesus' life says that crucifixion killed Jesus. All four of them say that he either breathed his last or gave up his spirit. So could any humanly devised method of killing stand a chance against the one who created and sustains the life of every human? Could any plague or pandemic hold a candle to the one who invented biology? Could the one who has no beginning and who will have no end, the one who transcends all of time and cannot be bound by it, eventually succumb to old age? Could a tragic accident or extinction-level event threaten the one who created and has numbered every atom and molecule in existence? No. There is not one thing that exists that could kill or take the life from Jesus. It is simply not possible. Very literally, the only way that Jesus could die is if he chose to die. And that is what he did. Hanging from a cross, rejected and humiliated by humanity, abandoned by his friends, forsaken by the Father, Jesus chose to die, to give up his spirit, There's nothing that could take his life, but he could lay it down. He chose to give up his spirit. So let's think about how his death plays out in the context of his day. And some of it comes right from our text. Moving on in John 19, verses 38 through 42 say, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy five pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Jesus' body was taken to a tomb and buried. What does that mean to us? What does that mean in our day, in our context? What did it mean to the people of Jesus' day in their context? Jesus' mother, Mary had to stand by while her son was cruelly, unjustly crucified, and then his body was placed in a tomb. That's an easy thing to say. But think about the, the dread in a moment like that for Mary. This is Mary, who more than 30 years prior had received the vision from the angel about Jesus, and he told her that there would be no end to Jesus' kingdom. So she raised him knowing that he was a child of promise. She even recognized when it was time to begin his ministry at the wedding in Cana. Mary watched the boy, Jesus, become the man, Jesus. The man become the rabbi, the rabbi become a prophet, and the prophet become the miracle worker. At every stage of his life, Mary's anticipation of Jesus as Messiah had to have grown. Her hope in him and in his kingdom grew with it. She did not anticipate that she would watch him get betrayed by the people who had flocked to him and followed him everywhere. She could not have imagined that she would watch him die on a Roman cross and then be buried. How devastated was she watching him cry out on the cross when her hope for anything good to come of his life turned to ash as he gave up his spirit. How did the 11 remaining disciples and the women who were in Jesus' inner circle feel? All of them had put so much hope for life in him. They had seen and experienced him heal people. They had seen him set people free from bondage. They had watched and experienced him cast out demons. They all had such a good reason to believe that Jesus would be their liberator, who would bring peace to their people and to their land. But that didn't happen. Instead, these hopeful people who had believed in Jesus had radically altered their lives to follow Jesus and defended him to their friends and to their peers who had preached him in the countryside and hoped beyond hope that he would come through for them all watched on as he was betrayed, as he died, and as he was placed in a tomb. When we have dedicated ourselves to following God, and then everything collapses around us, it can be devastating. It reminds me of the words from Fontine, where she said, I had, a, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream that I dreamed. Can we get fully real for a few minutes? I know there are some who are listening to me now for whom life feels literally like hell. A worship team sings about the goodness and the faithfulness of God and our mouths are stopped shut. We can't even fake it. A preacher talks about trusting God when things are difficult and his platitudes are like nails being driven into our ears. We squirm in our seats while he keeps droning on, but we have to mentally check out. A brother or sister greets us in the atrium and asks how we are. How do we answer them? Do we tell them the truth that life hurts so much that we spent the entire last night fantasizing about how to end it? Usually we just straight up lie to them. We lie to their faces. We say that life couldn't be better. Life is a dream. While thinking that we'd give anything for it to end. When our deepest longings and our deepest felt needs are squashed, lifeless, dead, and buried. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we don't always care that Jesus died for us. Now, I might have just taken you way off guard. Wait a minute, did the preacher just say that we don't always care that Jesus died for us? It's okay take a deep breath. Yeah, I admitted that. I just admitted that sometimes I don't always care that Jesus died for me. But if we're going to be real today, we have to address this. Sometimes I can't care that Jesus died for me. Why? Because sometimes my life hurts too much. Sometimes I have counted on God and believe that he cares for me, but I have been so disappointed by his apparent unwillingness to change my circumstances, to change my heart, to change the heart of those that I love, or to change anything that I care about, that I just don't think it's enough that he died for me. Sometimes things that I so desperately long for are so dead and so gone that I can't care about anything else. What am I supposed to do? When I'm so hurt and so disappointed, so depressed, so consumed by the darkness of my own reality that I can't care about anything other than my own pain. And actually, I've been in one of those places lately. A few things that I have longed for, worked for, and hoped for over the past few decades have seemingly just died a gruesome death in the last year. For starters, my dad dad died from COVID last year. And it was right at the tail end of a season where he and I were at bitter odds with each other over some things that had been 20 years in the making. And we were just starting to work through it. When instead of seeing a restored relationship with my dad, I had to preach a memorial service where I was talking about a hope and a Christ that I wasn't sure I believed in. My dad's death kicked off a season where it seems every time I turn around, something else that I have desperately longed for, desperately hoped for, has just died. I've spent hours and hours crying out to God, soul-searching, deconstructing my faith, sitting in sessions with therapists, and trying to hope in a resurrection. But none of that seems to change things. I just seem to get more and more exhausted. Hope wanes. And I wonder, where is the God that I trusted for so many years? Now, this is the point in the sermon where the preacher usually turns the corner really quickly and he says, But God! And we race to the resurrection. But we're not doing that today. I'm in it. All too often, we want to rush to the resurrection, but resurrection is not ours to produce. So today I'd like to thoroughly dispel any notion that it is not okay for us as disciples to talk about our hurts and how they translate into doubt. But unfortunately, a lot of churches and church people don't have any tolerance for real pain and real doubt. Those who bring up doubt and pain and questions are often given platitudes and hollow answers without ever having their hurts genuinely validated and addressed. It's completely understandable that sometimes we do this. Walking with people through extreme pain is messy. It's not easy. It's risky and painful. If we involve ourselves so closely with people who are in that kind of hurt and pain, there's a chance it might rub off on us, their doubt might become ours. But so many of us would rather insulate ourselves from that and self-protect. So we promise to pray for the wounded. Might even pray for him right there. But then we move on with our lives as though that was enough. I'm not saying that prayer is not important Whenever we participate in shutting down doubt and honest questions, whether within others or within our own souls, we are unknowingly committing some of the greatest violence that we can against the overall health of the church. It's understandable why we do it, though. There's no shame here, but it needs to stop. So as I transition into what to do when things that we have hoped and longed for are dead and buried... Please hear that I'm not talking about this unfeeling, uncaring response where we just tell each other to suck it up and trust Christ. I know what it is to hurt. I'm preaching this to my own soul as much as I am to anyone else. So we're not invalidating hurts today. We're not invalidating doubt. We're not invalidating fear. Jesus told a parable of a good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25 through 36. And in the story, a man was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him, robbed him, and left him for dead. After which, on separate occasions, a priest and a Levite passed by this man. These were the religious leaders of the day. They saw him. Maybe they prayed for him. Maybe they thought, I, the Levite probably passed by, and he said, you know, I really hope a priest comes by because he'll know what to do. And then the priest goes by. But a good Samaritan eventually passed by and he had compassion on the man. And he went to him and ministered to him. And there are a lot of applications that can be pulled from that parable, but I just want to focus on one. In the story, the Samaritan went to him and the way he ministered to him was he poured in oil and wine, two substances, Olive oil was a healing medication of that day. And the alcoholic nature of wine was antiseptic. For full healing to take place, it is necessary to address the wounds that we all receive from life when the things that we hoped and longed for are dead and buried with, from two fronts. First, we must pour in healing oil. We need to validate the hurts with tenderness and compassion the healing ointment and salve of someone who hears us and tries to understand our pain. In the spaces of wounding and pain, we need to know that we matter and that there can still be safety. Without the healing properties of validation and compassion, our wounds risk becoming permanent. Secondly, we must also apply antiseptic to our wounds. We need to address our wounds with the truth and dispel infectious lies that we can believe as a result of the ways that we have been wounded. The enemy desperately wants to exploit our wounding to plant lies about ourselves, about our loved ones, and about our savior in our minds. And if these lies are not dispelled and the truth is not proclaimed, our wounds might heal, but they will be infected an infected wound is, in, is destined to reopen. It may not come up in the same exact spot, but it will show its face again for sure. So as we talk about what to do when things we desperately long for are dead and buried, please hear that what we're doing is pouring in the oil and the wine, the healing medication and the antiseptic. That said, we are not necessarily removing pain. Instead, we are creating the environment where genuine healing can take place. Now, maybe that's not what we want to hear. Many of us would prefer anesthesia to healing. What kinds of anesthesia? Alcohol, drugs, shopping, gambling. What about bar karaoke in church? where we just show up and sing something to make ourselves feel better, but we never actually go after the wounds. Anesthesia helps, but healing is better. So as we move on to what to do in these kinds of spaces, I want to start with a character in the Bible who constantly fell on really hard times, particularly because of his service to God. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 21 through 28, he says this about himself. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, Far more imprisonments and countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea can you imagine that being your resume? I signed up to serve God and this is what I have to show for it. We can just breeze through that without actually thinking about it, but there are several very brutal, very unnerving things in that list. He had been imprisoned unjustly, beaten so many times he couldn't even remember how many. He said he was often near death I don't know that I've ever been near death, let alone often. He got 39 lash beatings from his own countrymen five times, and he was beaten with rods. And if that was done by the Romans, it could have been who knows how many. Paul was stoned. And when you're stoning someone, you don't stop until you think they're dead. When you think of Paul, you probably think of a, like a scholarly person who was a rabbi. He was probably very disfigured from all of these beatings. But listen to how he describes his journey in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose hope or heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Can you imagine having that resume after following Christ and describing it as this light, momentary affliction? That's nuts, But here's what Paul has modeled for us. We need to contextualize our wounding and our pain. Notice I did not say that we need to trivialize our wounding and our pain. Paul did not treat these things that deeply hurt and wounded him as though they were trivial matters. And he wasn't dismissive of everything that he went through. But he did put it into context of eternity and the work that God was doing in him as opposed to the things that were happening to him. So the first thing that we do in these kinds of spaces where everything that we had hoped for and longed for is dead and buried is we contextualize, not trivialize, our wounds and pain. The next thing we do is modeled by Jesus as he hung on the cross. There are a few different things that I just want to highlight that Jesus did around the crucifixion to make this next point. I'm gonna read them just real quickly. Luke 23:32 through 34 said, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In John 19, 26-27, thir- I think we did it last week, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And then even before the betrayal and arrest, and crucifixion of Jesus, he spent time with his father in prayer. And here's some of what we know about that. Matthew 26, 38 through 39, then he, Jesus, said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The common denominator in all of these interactions is that Jesus constantly has an outward focus. As with our look at Paul, let's not suggest that Jesus was just dismissive of his own inner turmoil, In the garden scene, we see that he is very much aware of his own sorrow and his own desires and his own distress, but he yields that to the Father. And then when he was on the cross, he didn't focus only on his own pain. He was aware of it, but he had a genuine concern and a compassion for those around him. Though his own pain had to be infinitely greater than anyone around him, Jesus was concerned about forgiveness for the people who are crucifying him, the eternal destination of the thief next to him, and the care of his mom after he was gone. Jesus' outward focus did not necessarily dull or relieve his own pain, but it is a model that we should attempt to follow. So the second thing that we do while our hopes are dying, dead, or buried is to try to keep an outward focus. And now the last thing, I have this question. What did Jesus hang on to while he was hanging on the cross? How did he endure without compromising the plan for our salvation or failing his father's will? How did Jesus not yield to bitterness or the desire to retreat from his pain? How did Jesus not call down fire from heaven to incinerate the false accusers or not with just a thought obliterate the nails in the wood that held him there? How did he not lash out with thunder and lightning, calling the sun and the moon to attention to bring to his knees Pilate, who had some political Power and show him what real power and authority look like? How did Jesus not rend heaven and earth in pieces to dull the pain of his crucifixion? How did he not choose anesthesia? Hebrews 12 1 through 2 say this Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. In sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was not easy for Jesus. It was something he had to endure. But it was something that he could endure because there was something greater than the pain that he was experiencing on the other side. Jesus was looking forward to joy. So the last point that I'd like to make for us today is this. We can, look, we can endure the brutality and the disappointments of this life, the death and the burial of the things that we hope for and the things that we long for, knowing that this is not our end. In Christ, through his death, his resurrection, our end is joy. Our destination is a place of peace and of rest, where every tear is wiped away and all things are made new. We will not necessarily have this thought randomly occur to us in the midst of our deepest wounds. But we can deliberately look forward to eternity like Jesus had to in the midst of his pain. And as we close, I just want to remind you that although we've spent some time in the depths today with some things that are dead and buried for us, resurrection is coming. For Jesus, resurrection was a few days away, for some of us, it might be a lifetime. But let's remember who it was that was dead and buried. The one who made all things. The one who transcends time and space. Who has no beginning. Who will have no end. The one who even while he was hanging on a cross thought that life with you was a joy enough to endure it. This is the one that we can trust while things that we long for are dead and buried. And just as Jesus was buried in a tomb for a few days, it seems like he's buried in the heavens now. He's gone, removed. But just as there was a day when he rose again, there will be a day when he comes again. And that will be the day that for those of us who have trusted in him, every tear will be wiped away and all things will be made new. I'm going to pray and then we're dismissed. Jesus, it hurts sometimes. It hurts a lot when things that we long for, that we counted on you for, are dead and buried. We just pray that you would have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be the comforter that you were promised to be and Father, as uh, we just acknowledge and validate that there are very real things that um, that crush our souls that cause this life to feel like hell. We also acknowledge that um, all authority is yours that you have been given the keys to life and death, and we just lean into you and press into you in that. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, I love you, and I acknowledge that this is a heavy message, and as always, if there's something that you would like to talk about or have someone pray with you about, the prayer team and elders and I will be down front. You're dismissed. I hope that you have a blessed week.